0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 48, Powell to the People, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 9th. As the final Fed meeting of the decade looms, we'll also be watching the ECB's Changing of Lagarde. Central
1: banking humor really is the best humor. Is there any other kind of humor?
0: please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg, or email me at IAN dot L Y N G E N at BMO.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Another week, another range. All too true, Ben. The one defining characteristic over the course of the last week has been how well the trading range for 10-year yields has managed to hold in. Now, we've seen some fluctuations in the equity market, which have contributed to somewhat choppy price action in rates, although that 170 to 185 range in 10s has managed to hold even despite a very strong non-farm payrolls report on Friday. This is very telling and I think rather informative about how the real risks are stacking up for the outlook as the end of the year approaches. On the one hand, the market is very content to trade off of any incremental piece of information related to the trade war, regardless of, frankly, how inconsequential it might be, or rather how vague the implications are. That said, the market is still focused on the prospects for a deal to be signed by the end of the year, which frankly seems beyond too ambitious from our perspective. But nonetheless, with the December 15th tariff deadline quickly approaching, the week ahead promises to be plagued with a great deal of headline risk in this regard. We'll also argue that the proximity of next week's series of events contributed to the fact that the market remains reluctant to break out in either direction, either on the bearish side or on the bullish side. That leaves us biased for a continued sideways grind until we have the information communicated from the FOMC, the ECB, the UK election, as well as whatever comes out of the White House on trade. The market is also running up against the realities of the end of 2019. This is a time of the year where typically we would expect price action to lack the same degree of conviction as we ultimately anticipate will emerge with the new year. It's also a time of the year that is prone to choppier price action, far more so than we have seen thus far in December. So as books begin to close for the year, risk-taking appetite declines, and of course, the projections for the year ahead become all the more relevant, our bias continues to be for incremental upward pressure on rates into and out of the flip of the calendar. Well, the employment report is now behind us, and attention is going to shift to the Fed next week. Domestically, the Fed is probably the Biggest market event, although there is still a lingering concern about what happens on the trade front with the December 15th tariff date quickly approaching. Let us not forget the ECB as well as the ever-changing political situation in the UK. But for now, let's talk a little bit about the Fed. We know that we're not going to see any change in the policy rate. That has been very clearly telegraphed by Fed speakers. And so it really comes down to what does the dot plot look like and what are some of the more nuanced takeaways for the funding market and the very front end of the curve. One of the things that we've been contemplating are some of the pricing anomalies in funding markets around year end. John, what do you think the chances are that we see another spike comparable to what we had in September?
3: I would say very low if we compare it to the September 16th and 17th volatility. That scale of shock higher in repo rates, I don't think is going to happen. That said, I would expect rates to go up. One thing I've been watching closely is forward-settling turn rate so basically the overnight rate over year end and right now that's trading call it 384%. If that actually happened that would be substantially larger than any quarter or year end we've seen in the past 5 years. So when I'm looking at that rate I see it as reflecting two things. One an expectation of a rate spike, call it 50 basis points, maybe even 100 if you want to get a little bit dramatic. But that 380 number actually is 200 basis points higher. So part of it is an expectation for a spike. Part of it is basically an insurance premium people are paying to lock in funding. So even if you expect that rates will only jump somewhere into the twos, you're avoiding a cataclysmic scenario of six something percent. So I have no doubt that repo rates are going to spike higher over year end. It's just a question of how much. And it seems to me that current pricing is really factoring a a large term premium or risk premium
0: around a very large tail event. One of the obvious offsets will be the fact that the Fed has transitioned back to a balance sheet expansion mode with a lot of the activity occurring in the very front end. When we ponder exactly what $60 billion a month in bill purchases will have done by the end of the year in terms of funding, it is far less obvious than saying, okay, it's worth 10 basis points for repo. It's worth 100 basis points. However, using the prior episode's to inform the range that we're considering, as you highlighted, John, the 50 basis point spike in sulfur is a clear line in the sand based on what we have seen in prior episodes.
3: And we saw that 50 basis point level both at year end 2018, as well as quarter end at the end of September, just a couple months ago. The world's obviously a lot different since then. You mentioned the bill purchases. The other major factor is the repo operations. My forecasts for what the size of the repo offering is going to be over year end, this includes all the term and overnight, is about $335 billion, So a third of a trillion dollars. That's a large number. And over $100 billion more than take up has been at its maximum so far. So I don't think the binding constraint is going to be reserve provision to the primary dealers. That said, the reason rates will still spike, and I think that they will, is because of regulatory factors, namely the GSIB snapshot that takes place over year end, as well as one of the underlying problems, which is that only primary dealers have access to the repo facility. So there's still a chunk of the market which doesn't have access. You put that together, rates should go higher. I'm just skeptical that SOFR is going to spike
1: 200 basis points. So bringing it back to the Fed this week, it sort of brings up three outstanding questions, at least for me. One, will there be a standing repo facility announced? Probably not, given the fact that it's been, quote unquote, being studied for the past several months. Two, will the Fed expand the list of counterparties that has access to the so-called sitting repo facility? And three, what pace can we expect for the bill purchase program going forward? As of now, they've committed going into but not through Q2. So any additional color there will be informative for how Q1 and Q2 plays out in 2020.
0: To that third point, it would be somewhat surprising if the Fed decided to use the FOMC meeting to communicate that nuance, because if we look back to when that was first announced, it actually was intermeeting, but around an important date in the funding calendar. But that certainly doesn't mean we won't get some insight, or even in the press conference and the QA, the question does seem to be very much. Top of mind for the market as a whole.
3: And I think that's a great way to think about it. There's a good chance we get some color in the press conference. I certainly don't expect them to pull back on that $60 billion a month pace, at least for one more month. It's more a question of how are they thinking about Q1 and Q2? Are they going to taper? Are they going to do a sudden stop? Are they going to go $60 billion through the end of June? Are they going to taper as early as January? These remain outstanding questions. And at best. We can try to read the tea leaves, get a sense of how much take up there is in the repo operations. But frankly, it's a large outstanding
0: question for H1 next year. Keeping with the time-tested adage, don't do repo, let's think about the Fed in a broader perspective. We're at the moment right now where the committee is actively trying to transition from a rate-cutting stance to one in which the Fed will be on hold for the foreseeable future. The foreseeable future in this context still only extends into the middle of the first half of 2020, but nonetheless, this is an important policy moment for Powell. We've heard from several Fed speakers that they're comfortable With a slower pace of growth in the fourth quarter, which to some extent implies that they've already conceded that we'll have a bit of a slowdown, that's not suggesting we'll actually see negative GDP in Q4, but nonetheless, a slower growth profile coupled with flagging inflationary pressures and the Fed is still going to stop cutting rates does represent a departure from what we might typically anticipate. I would say one of the most
3: important things about the upcoming FOMC is sequencing. And if you're the committee, you're trying to decide how to set monetary policy. You don't know the outcome of the UK election, But more specifically, you don't know whether a phase one deal is actually achieved, whether tariffs are raised by December 15th. So in that context, they're operating with significant uncertainty. I think it makes sense to keep rates on hold, but one could imagine that relatively soon after that, there's a lot more clarity on the geopolitical front, i.e. Brexit, and there's potentially more clarity on the trade war within seven days of the FOMC, we're going to know whether tariffs went up on December 15th, were rolled back, whether a deal was met. That's an important calculus for macroeconomics at this moment and an input that they won't have going into 2020. So Ian, I think you're absolutely right. The forecast window extends into 2020, but due to the sequencing of events over the next two weeks, the forecast window, frankly, is quite short.
0: Well, the sequencing issue also applies to the ECB, which will be meeting on Thursday before the UK election results will be in. So this implies that the same degree of uncertainty will also be at play, and it's also Lagarde's first meeting as the president of the ECB. There's been a lot of chatter about some of the pushback the ECB has received for their foray further into negative rates. The consensus at this point is that Europe will not see another rate cut in the near term, although this does open the question if they need to provide more stimulus, what avenues are actually available in a negative rate environment. Buy more bonds? Sure, there's a point in which, as we have seen previously with the ECB, that they simply run out of eligible bonds to purchase. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't expand the universe of eligible securities under their QE program. Stocks. But if we use the Bank of Japan's experience as a template, there will be more assets added to the bank's aggregate holdings. One
3: unconventional, unconventional policy measure that the ECB increasingly seems to be employing is leaning on fiscal policymakers in order to try to open the proverbial purse strings. We saw Draghi do this quite explicitly, kind of acknowledging, hey guys, we've done everything we can on the monetary policy front. We need fiscal spending to come in and increase aggregate demand. And in fact... Lagarde's first official speech reiterated that point. So Ian, your thesis that the ECB is running out of space, I think is perfectly well founded. The question then is, how do you manage the politics behind trying to get increased fiscal spending to boost growth and inflationary pressure?
0: Well, the same logic can also be applied domestically because we've heard many Fed officials suggest that we're running up against the end of what monetary policy can do. Think about how low mortgage rates are, but it's still considered an unattractive time to purchase a home. Now, pushing back against Washington at this particular moment in time will probably not be as fruitful as it might have been for example, in the beginning of 2017. Nonetheless, several clients have asked whether there's any chance that we get another tax cut before the 2020 election in the U.S.
3: I'm certainly skeptical of that. And one of the reasons why is we can make the comparison between the U.S. and, say, Germany, but the budget deficit situation between those two countries is massively different. We're already running trillion-dollar-plus deficits in addition to a lot of the political discord, eventually budget hawks have to show up somewhere and it's highly unlikely that a democratic house is going to vote for a tax cut, which would boost consumer sentiment going into the presidential election next year. So to me, not only does the U.S. have dramatically less fiscal space due to its
0: current budget picture, but it's a more complicated political picture. You bring up an interesting concept about the budget hawks in Washington. Traditionally, they have been on the conservative or the Republican side. So as I think about what would it take to actually see pushback on the growing deficit in the U.S., especially in the context of MMT and any of the political momentum that that might get into the election in 2020, I'm somewhat at a loss from what quarters that might actually emerge. I think that's a very
3: fair argument, and one of the things that scares me is what happens during the next downturn. If we simultaneously have that reemergence of debt-level fears, everyone starts talking about that 70%, 100% debt-to-GDP ratio, that coincides with either a recession or a middling recovery, that becomes a pro-cyclical slowdown that making it even more difficult to get back to potential growth and achieve that 2% inflation target. It's not obvious that will actually occur. Perhaps during the next recession, MMT logic takes over and you're able to get a counter-cyclical spending program through. But to the extent we're in a pro-cyclical world now, maybe we'll also be one in the next downturn.
0: It'll also be interesting to see how the demographic issue plays out in the context as we think about the next cycle or two. Baby boomers are continuing to move well into retirement. That has implications political as well as potential strains on Social Security. Obviously, the health aspect of that factors in as well. It's not entirely obvious that as baby boomers transition into their golden years and millennials continue to rise as a percentage of the labor force, that there will be a collective concern on the part of the voting public to reduce debt.
1: And as discussions around the election become more and more frequent, the topic of debt will also become increasingly relevant. And here, even though we don't have clarity yet on who the Democratic nominee will be, it's important to consider that while in the press, MMT seems to have been attributed to more of the left-leaning bias, the same holds true on the right extreme as well. So it's not unreasonable to expect similar outcomes from the edges of the political spectrum, whereas a result that yields a more moderate politician may wind some of these concerns back.
0: The strong argument to be made that given the amount of debt that we've seen issued by the Treasury Department over the last couple years— And the fact that 10-year yields are still comfortably below 2% only reinforces the validity of the MMT argument. And as it plays into the hands of the political candidates for 2020, if anything, it promises to be an interesting debate.
3: Speaking of the drama and political risk in Washington one reasonable question coming out of this past week where we got confirmation that articles of impeachment are going to be filed against president trump are you guys surprised at the lack of price impact
0: if anything what we saw was a drift higher in equities and in yields now i wouldn't attribute that to the drama playing out in Washington at the moment. But taking a step back, I don't think it's surprising at all that the market has largely ignored this issue, if for no other reason than being impeached in the House does not necessitate that Trump will be removed by the Senate.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Exact same line of thinking. Impeachment was always the more likely of those scenarios, but it still seems that an actual removal, getting through the Senate, is an unlikely event.
0: But what is likely and sad is that we'll spend some portion of the next 48 episodes discussing this in the week ahead the treasury market will have a variety of events to provide incremental trading direction the biggest is arguably the trade war but that has been on the mind of the market for a long time and the prospects for an actual deal or enough clarity that we could definitively trade it are very low a can-kicking maneuver, some type of extension, a delay, or the implementation of more tariffs are the most realistic outcomes that one can imagine. So setting that aside, we do get the Fed meeting. The FOMC is expected to leave rates unchanged, ending their rate-cutting campaign. We also see the ECB. No major change is expected from the ECB, although getting a better sense of the tone of the new ECB president now that she's officially taken over the role will be useful in gauging the way the market will be trading the press conferences. In addition, we do get retail sales on Friday the 13th. CPI as well on Wednesday. And regardless of what the inflation or consumption update tell us, it's not going to change the Fed for obvious reasons. And in the wake of such a strong employment report, it seems highly unlikely that even a double disappointment will move the needle for the market's expectations for at least six months of the Fed being on hold. Let us not forget that there will be a round of supply as well with the 10- and 30-year auctions on Tuesday and Thursday, respectively. The supply calendar is kicked off with Monday's three-year, although it's been a very long time since the results of a three-year auction have really set the tone for trading in the treasury market as a whole. 10s and 30s, on the other hand, could have incremental influence in the overall direction of the market. Nonetheless, the supply takedowns recently have gone reasonably well. There continues to be ample underwriting support for U.S. Treasuries, even if a couple auctions have required a bit more of a tail than we might have otherwise anticipated. Looking toward the balance of the year, holiday trading conditions will become very thematic. We ultimately expect that the tone that's in place at the end of this week will be what drives the market into 2020. And we'll suggest that the lion's share of the heavy lifting on the tone-setting front will be accomplished by the FOMC, the SCP, and obviously Powell's press conference. We've reached a point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the spirit of the season begins to rise and holiday office parties approach, remember, while your patented routine of running man to moonwalk to robot concluding with jazz hands may seem like a great idea at the time, you will see these people again. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's i-a-n dot l-y-n-g-e-n at BMO.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
2: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell, or to buy, or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.